So here we are, another exciting episode of Digging Up the Past. Just in case you forgot, I am your host, Petros Katupis, and today we will be talking about ancient Rome. More specifically, I have a guest here, Lawrence Reed, and we will be discussing the late Republic and the life and role of Cicero and his role during the late Republic period of ancient Roman history. Welcome to the show, Larry. If you do not mind, please introduce yourself and let our audience know who is Larry Reed. Okay, thank you, Petros, for having me. I appreciate it very much. I'm an economist and historian by profession. Uh, I was for 11 years the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. I retired in 2019, but now I'm unretired because the board has brought me back on an interim basis as president again until they find a new one. But before that, I ran think tanks in Michigan, uh, namely the Mackinac Center, and one in Idaho called the Center for Market Alternatives. And before that, I was teaching at the college level at Northwood University. And I've traveled much of the world to 87 countries. Uh, the history of Rome is one of those things that I've had an interest in since, I think, junior high school. So literally 60, almost 60 years. <laughs> so it's uh, great to be with you and to talk about that uh, incredible period of human history. How many countries did you say? 87. 87. 87. And of course, one of those countries was, was Italy, right? Quite a few times. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Northern Italy, especially. I would say same here, but I haven't visited Northern Italy. I, I, I'd like to one day because uh, Etruscan history is, is something that I've just always been interested in. And if I want to go to, to Italy, I want to visit Tuscany and just take it all in. Oh, um, it's just it's just something something about the Etruscans that I don't know. It That's has always fascinated me. That's the place to be. And, and if you do go to Tuscany, there's a place you might uh, otherwise uh, not know about because it's off the beaten path. But the little town of Vinci, where Leonardo was from, has a fantastic museum devoted to Leonardo da Vinci. And it, uh, the little town there sits on top of a mountain. And uh, that museum was one of the highlights of one of the visits I made to that part of Italy. I'll have to remember that. Thank you for the tip. Uh -huh. Now, you know, aside from the Etruscans, I'm fascinated by the early days of Rome. Uh, you know, the early days of the Republic and how it came to be. Uh, you know, we a lot of us know the story. Rome... Uh, when when Rome was first created, it was initially ruled by kings, and and I think it was seven kings from Romulus to, I think it was uh, Tarquin the Proud, Tar That's Tarquin, right. Tarquin, yes. in the late sixth century BC. Although these are a lot of these are stories, yeah, and and stories that are mixed with legend and have yet to be truly corroborated by archaeology, and it. And it's not just the archaeology that can't truly corroborate it, but even the old Latin writings. We don't really have much in the way of old Latin writings that have you know survived to this to this present day. Again, yeah. making it difficult to substantiate the early days of of both Roman history and Roman society. But we have so much Roman, or I should say, Latin literature dating towards the end of the of the republic and and we're here to talk about we're not here to talk about the days of the early republic we're here to discuss its its end and the eventual rise of uh, the empire under caesar augustus which i think was about 27 you know bc yes 
And one of the people that I've, I believe you are most familiar with, or at least most fascinated by is, is Cicero. And, uh, you know, I've done a little bit of research and you did provide me with some of that uh, content. He is a very interesting historical character and was a major influence in Roman society and played a fairly large role in trying to keep the Republic from collapsing. What got you into Cicero? What what about Cicero uh, appealed to you? More than anything else, uh, Petros, I think it was his courage in speaking truth to power. Uh, he was born in 106 BC, so he saw most of the last century of the Roman Republic. Uh, it was decaying all around him. Uh, he held fast to the old virtues that made the Republic uh, as great as it was. And as he saw those virtues crumbling in the face of civil strife and uh, evaporation of public sentiments towards the uh, constitution of Rome, he saw a dictatorship on the horizon. He didn't just crawl under a rock. Uh, he uh, very publicly uh, spoke and later wrote about the importance of sticking fast to the virtues that made Rome great in the first place. He, he took on the would-be dictators of the day. And of course, he lost his life because of it. But uh, he remained true to the end in what the Republic was all about. And although sometimes we might say, well, what good did it do him? The Republic didn't last much longer than he did. But here, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. And it's because uh, 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 he stood for some virtues virtues that stand the test of time and that were very important, I might add, in the founding of this country. Our founders of America knew who Cicero was quite well and had read a lot of his teachings. People like John Adams and Thomas Jefferson said he was among the greatest people who ever lived. So uh, we remember him and, and revere him in many cases. I certainly do. Because... Uh, he spoke truth to power and was amazingly prolific and courageous. Well, that says a lot about his character. But yeah, I guess one thing that uh, is not quite clear to me is while we see Cicero in a certain light in today, how did the ancients view him? Did they just see him as somebody who was just, uh, I don't know, how, how, how can I describe it? Just rubbing people the wrong way, going against, you know, the norm. And, and I mean, how did the ancients see Cicero? Well, uh, you know, he certainly had his detractors. Uh, if you were a power-seeking official or general of the day, uh, you probably uh, got a few slings and arrows uh, in your direction from Cicero, and you probably didn't like him. And there were other people who uh, said the thing about him on a personal level was he seemed to be a very vain person. And yeah, I don't question that. Enough people seem to observe that, that he probably he probably did have some vanity about him. He certainly liked public attention. But uh, those are minor foibles. The fact is that uh, he rose through the so-called cursus honorum, or the ladder of power in ancient Rome, uh, one step after another, enjoying popular support uh, from the people. He, he never lost an election. He was elected in um, 60, uh, or 63 BC to the highest pos position that you could gain in the Roman Republic, which was consul. They always had two of them. He was elected one of them, and he so overshadowed the other would barely know his name. Uh, Gaius Hybrid, I think it was, but he was uh, but a shadow of, uh, of Cicero. So he won every election. He was uh, lauded widely uh, in his lifetime. 
and hated by all the right people, the ones who uh, had power in their minds instead of the preservation of the old republic. Power and uh, easily influenced by by bribes and money, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. And there's no evidence, not even charges that had any credibility in his day that Cicero was ever bribed uh, successfully. Uh, Julius Caesar tried to convince him to join his uh, triumvirate, uh, but he refused. uh, His Republican virtues and values were so strong that he resisted even the offer to be uh, of supreme power permanently with uh, people like Julius Caesar. And these these are virtues that Rome was... I don't want to say found on, but the Republic itself was found on. I mean, these these are virtues that go way back. So he's he's really channeling his ancestors uh, yes. with, with his actions. Yes, he sure was. And uh, that's as much as any reason why I admire him to this day. I, sh- I should add, too, by the way, that because he had some very good uh, assistants who took uh, copious notes, Uh, We have more written material that survives from Cicero or his assistants than than survives from any other human being who lived before the year 1000 AD. So it's not as though this guy is just just a lot of conjecture or myth. We know a lot about him uh, because there's so much that survives uh, all these centuries. And, and what do his writings mean today? Like, how are they studied today? How are they viewed today? What value do they provide to uh, us today? Well, in law schools, some of his uh, uh, speeches and orations are still read to this day. In fact, in uh, uh, there were two cases that, as a lawyer, he was involved with that earned him a great deal of public attention and accolades. Uh, the second of the, of the two involved him as a prosecutor going after a Roman governor of, uh, I believe it was of Sicily. Uh, the Sicilians had complained to the Roman authorities that, hey, this governor you put in charge of us is a corrupt and nasty SOB. And uh, uh, But he had a lot of power back in Rome, too, and had friends in high places. So he figured he'd skate, even though he was ripping off the people of Sicily right and left. Well, Cicero took him on, and um, the combination of his uh, several orations in the courtroom have been compiled and and put together in a volume called In Verum, or About Verus, who was the name of that um, corrupt official. And it's read in law schools to this day. And that's true uh, not only in law schools, but also in um, schools of history. Uh, People are still reading his uh, orations against Catiline, who was a Roman senator who um, tried to overthrow uh, the Roman Republic in 63 BC at a time when Cicero was one of the two consuls. It was Cicero who exposed that conspiracy and uh, defeated um, Catiline in battle. Uh, but before he did that, he, uh, in the Senate, went before the Senate and said, here's the evidence. This guy sitting here in your midst is trying to uh, overthrow um, the Republic, and here are his plans to uh, assassinate many of you, including me. And, uh, well, before his speech was done, uh, that particular one, uh, Catiline fled the Senate. <laughs> he knew that his number was up. But after that, um, when Cicero uh, took care of that, uh, he was named father of the country by uh, the Roman Senate and celebrated as a great hero, a man who saved the Republic at, at that late hour. And you might think, well, they gave him so much power to get that job done, you'd think a normal human being would have hung on to it and said, oh, you, you can't afford to let me go. But nope, when his year was up, that was the length of time a consul served, one year, 
uh, Cicero walked away from all that power, uh, kind of like Cincinnatus of uh, the early Republic, or George Washington in our day, our days. It's funny when we talk about the the, the Roman Republic and and try to compare it to our modern Republic. There's a lot to be said of the term limits that the <laughs> that yeah. the Romans observed, uh, where you cannot hold office or a particular office for more than you know, the, the duration that it's intended to be held, meaning you can't even get reelected. So you cannot make it a career to hold that same office yeah. indefinitely. You know, I sometimes wish we could do that here, but <laughs> well, you, know, you maybe think I've done a little research on term limits in uh, times past and the strictest, shortest term limits I've ever found was in a remarkable country that was in its day called Ragusa. And its capital is the present uh, Dubrovnik in Croatia uh, along the Adriatic Sea. And for 450 years, it existed as an independent republic. The top leader of Ragusa was called a rector. And term limits kept him to no more than one month. <laughs> I mean, he could barely move in the palace when he had to move out. And That's he crazy. Couldn't hold, yeah, he couldn't hold that office again for at least two years. But one month was all he could serve. They didn't want anybody accumulating more power than you could in a You'd month. You'd think time. you'd run out of... Uh... Uh, you know, officials or people to hold office, at, you know, if if you cycle them out every month, that's... Well, that wouldn't be so bad, maybe. But but I think because they said, well, you can come back, but you have to wait at least two years. That probably uh, took care of that problem. Maybe. <laughs> Although it's it's funny. So you, you did mention earlier about uh, the... Until Cicero was assassinated. So why don't you tell me about that? What what events led to, you know, Cicero eventually being assassinated? And what did it mean uh, yeah. once he was assassinated to the Republic and what came afterward? Uh, let me, if I might, uh, answer the second question first. And then I'll, uh, I think that might be a better order, only because this question of when did the Roman Republic end uh, has... Uh, occupied some time uh, among historians. It's, uh, that's a point of contention. Did it end when Julius Caesar was declared emperor for life? Well, some could credibly argue that, but that only lasted a month. And um, the assassins of, of Julius Caesar were eager to reestablish the Republic. So you might say it still had a chance. Others say, well, uh, the Republic surely ended when uh, Caesar Augustus in 27 BC became the unquestioned new power uh, and the first emperor of imperial Rome. Well, I think the actual, uh, I, I like to say it was when Cicero died that the Republic ended because he was the last great and influential voice in defense of the Republic. Everybody else had pretty much been uh, cowed by uh, various uh, military figures and, and by uh, spineless uh, senators. So th this is an important moment. Cicero had come out of retirement uh, in 43 BC uh, to attack Mark Antony. Mark Antony, in the wake of Caesar's assassination, tried to take the reins of power, declare himself the new authority. He wanted to be the dictator for life. And so there was a moment there where that had to be settled one way or the other. And uh, people like Brutus, who were behind the uh, assassination of Caesar, they, they wanted to see the Republic restored. But um, uh, Mark Antony grabbed the reins of power, and that's when Cicero came out of retirement and went to the Senate and gave this series of 14 speeches called the Philippics. You can still read them today. 
in which he assailed Mark Antony in all of these 14 uh, orations. He says uh, he's a tyrant in waiting. Do not allow him to uh, uh, declare himself the authority. Uh, this is the last chance for the Republic. Save it. Don't shove it down the toilet uh, with this guy. Well, as you might imagine, a power-seeking tyrant like Mark Antony wasn't going to let that go. And so he dispatched a uh, an assassin uh, to take Cicero out, a man by the name of Herennius. And Herennius um, accosted Cicero, I believe it was at Cicero's home, and um, with his sword and with Caesar in his last words saying, what you're about to do, soldier, is not right, but do it quickly, something to that effect. Uh, Herennius uh, beheaded him. I think that's important because um, if that can be argued as the real end of the Roman Republic, there was no one left who would really speak truth to power, put their life on the line in its defense. And while that may have signaled the end, I mean, the Republic was already, as as we you know alluded to earlier, was already struggling. You know, yes. not just with opportunists and in in the corruption, but Rome got too big for its own good. Yeah, you know there was there was a lot of in, internal like you know turmoil, uh, revolts. You know it was just they were having a hard time keeping the peace within their own. So it, it just it was inevitable. I mean, a Republican only gets so big, right? Uh, yeah, I know. I've often been asked, well, what do you think caused the end of the Republic? And I always say, I think uh, three, maybe a fourth factor, are are involved, and they really start to to hold sway in the 140s BC. So this is a century-long decline, at least, before Cicero's assassination. One of the reasons behind the Republic's decline was a, a disintegration of personal character. You know, the early Roman Republicans were, they, they believed strongly in personal character and things like honesty and uh, thinking of the long term and, and service to, um, uh, to Rome as opposed to whatever advantages you for the moment and other traditional Roman virtues. But that is kind of forgotten by later generations. And by the 140s BC, people start falling over themselves to get something from the government at at other people's expense. So you had the decline of character leading to uh, a welfare state in which people's loyalty was simply purchased at the expense of other people. You had foreign adventurism that was quite costly uh, to the Roman treasury. And then you had the decline of constitutional uh, principles that uh, had long kept Rome together. Uh, you mentioned term limits, uh, and I, as I did too. You know, for a long time, consuls could serve one year. That was it. You're supposed to give that position up. But by that last century, you have, uh, this is just one indication of this, you have a lot of people who say, ah, you know, who cares about the Constitution? You folks really need me. I want to stick around a lot more than just one year. And so you had people like Marius, who ends up uh, getting seven terms as consul. I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose of of term limits, doesn't it? But by that point, people didn't care so much about the Constitution as they cared about getting goodies from the government or keeping the government at bay or, you know, other things besides just uh, the future of of the country. So then, as things from within started to deteriorate, and you had the last remaining people that were trying to to protect and keep the republic going, you know, finally disappear. Yeah. We finally have after Caesar, we have Caesar or Julius Caesar, we have Caesar Augustus declare himself emperor. 
mm-hmm. of Rome, and then everything changed. You know, you you yeah. you still had some of the institutions, I believe, like you still had the Senate. Yes. Uh, and, and maybe a few other offices that transferred over from the Republic, but they didn't mean anything. Ultimately, it was it, there was no checks and balances. It was this is what the emperor says. And, and, and that's it. Right. Yeah. Those early emperors, Augustus in particular, at least had enough of a conscience and a, 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 a somewhere deep inside. He, he had a, a love for the old Republic that he couldn't bring himself, nor could the other early emperors to abolish uh, all aspects of the Republic. And like you say, the Senate, it, it, it's still around in 476 AD when Rome uh, is overrun by bar- barbarians. There's still a Senate. Really? There is? Okay. I'm surprised yeah. it even lasted that long. Yeah, it did. But, you know, it was, it was just a club of uh, people who enjoyed the trappings of power and money and really didn't have any uh, real say. The, uh, that was in the hands of the emperor for the last 500 years uh, of Rome. That's probably the, uh, a good way to think of Rome, ancient Rome, too. It's about a thousand years, and the first 500 was as a republic. The second 500 was as an empire or imperial yeah. autocracy. Very Two very different places. Yep, yep. But, you know, I, as, as I alluded to earlier, considering the size that Rome grew to, the fact that they changed the way that how things were governed, it, it just made sense. I, I'm, I don't necessarily... I personally would not like being ruled by an emperor, but <laughs> if if we were living in a time where, you know, we, we occupied or controlled such a vast region or a large amount of the world, then that's a different story. But anyway, what, so what, this is a tough question to ask only because sometimes personal biases may get in the way, but at a high level, what can history teach us about the, the Roman Republic? What mistakes should we avoid to ensure that, for instance, the U.S. modern republic doesn't go down the same path? Yeah, that's an excellent question and as relevant today as ever, maybe more so. Uh, well, one mistake, I think, is to allow uh, for a people to allow their character to erode. Uh, when, for instance, a people no longer regard truth as something worth dying for, uh, as critically important, that there's the truth, there isn't his truth, her truth, your truth, you know, a million different truths, whatever you want it to be, as long as you remain firm and steadfast in a commitment to truth and to th- virtues like honesty and uh, humility and patience and courage and responsibility, then a society has a very good chance of being free and prosperous and lasting. Uh, but when that stuff goes by the boards, not much else you can do is, is going to save it. I'm not aware of any society in history that lost its character and kept its liberties. And in most cases, if they lost their character, they lost uh, ultimately both their liberties and their lives. Uh, so character is critically important. And we should learn about uh that that's something that uh, should be held near and dear. Don't let that slide into oblivion or your civilization will uh, be flushed away. Another important uh, truth I think we learned from ancient Rome is the importance of dispersing political power. Uh, the Roman Republic thrived in large measure because power was not concentrated in a single person's hands. It was dispersed. There was a Senate the top position consisted of two people, not one. 
You had popularly elected assemblies. You had uh, the rule of law uh, in uh, showing up in such things that we value to this day as habeas corpus and the right to a trial by a jury and you know all those important pillars of a, a free and just society. Um, but when people decide that that just isn't so important anymore and, hey, this guy, yeah, he wants more power, but he'll do something for me if he gets it. So let's let's go with it. Uh, well, then, you know, they're, they're forgetting what made them great in the first place. So the Roman Constitution, which had guaranteed so many of these um, uh, important rights, you know, by the first century B.C., people said, well, what do we care about that? That's that's hundreds of years old. And this guy's promising benefits for today and glory and battle and all kinds of stuff. And so other things became more important to them than those institutions and ideas that made them free and prosperous in the first place. Very well said. So, you know, we talk about the Roman Republic, and it wasn't an idea that came into existence overnight. I don't know if this is something you looked into, but how were its foundations laid? Do we have any history or knowledge of what inspired the early republic and some of the institutions that came from it? Like what influenced it? What what created it? Yes, we do know that a very important component in the creation of the republic was the public uh, opposition to and distaste for uh, one-man rule. Uh, Tarquin the Brow, the last of those seven kings that you referred to earlier, became very unpopular, and uh, Romans staged a revolt against him. And in this sense, you know, this is similar to what America did. The Americans got tired of a king 3,000 miles away and what they perceived to be his tyranny, and uh, we overthrew him. Well, that's what the Romans did. And and they had such a distaste for one-man rule that once they got rid of the last of the kings, that's when Romans said, we got to do something to keep that kind of stuff from ever coming back again. So let's not let power be concentrated in one person's hands. Let's have two guys at the top and we'll limit them to one year and we'll say that they have to agree on anything for anything to happen. And uh, one can veto the decisions of the other. So we'll tie their hands so they can't exercise total power. And they created the Senate and a little later, uh, popularly elected assemblies. And so, yeah, for the first hundred years, this sort of this uh, re these Republican institutions uh, evolved uh, into um, what we know later as the uh, uh, a very firm constitutional foundation. Uh, but it was the distaste for one man rule that prompted it from the very beginning. Romans did not want to see that again. In fact, they even had a rule that was in existence for hundreds of years in the old Republic that anybody who was caught conniving to overthrow the constitution and get himself uh, in the position of like a king again, then anybody could kill that guy with, with impunity. <laughs> and that was in Roman law. We've discussed two people at the top. I just find that amazing because you don't normally think of two presidents yeah. or two, two C CEOs of a company or two of whatever, right? There's, yeah. there's typically just one person and then, yes, other branches that offer, you know, uh, a balance in, in power in the decision making of the country. But two, why two? I, I, I don't know. I don't get it. Like what? Yeah. Well, there was an attempt by the Romans to make sure no one could emerge with yeah. total power. Uh, but remember, government, and I think they sensed this, government is a little different than everything else. And uh, I think they were, the Romans uh, 
you know, look at it this way. Government may be the only walk of life where people who really want the job are usually the last ones who should get it. You know, in the private sector, you really want somebody who will apply for an open position and who really wants it. <laughs> but in government, quite often, the ones who really want it are the ones to be wary of because they're if they're really if you find out they're in it just for the power and the notoriety, you don't want them in that position. Yeah. Let me say that uh, I hope your listeners will come away with uh, the idea that, hey, this stuff is worth studying. This isn't just old stuff that doesn't bear any relevance. There, there are a lot of lessons to be learned uh, from the ancient Roman experience. And uh, America's founders knew that experience very well. And you see in the way they crafted uh, the American government at the Constitutional Convention, they were looking back to ancient Rome and copied some of the uh, uh, the, the pillars that uh, Rome built its freedom on. But our founders were also very aware that Romans lost their freedom. Uh, they were very aware that in the end, the Romans walked away from it all. And that's why we talk about them now as history, not as a present day place. And our founders were hoping, I know, uh, that they could improve on what the Romans did and maybe make those uh, markers in the ground a little firmer that would keep people from abandoning uh, their liberties and the ideas behind it. Now, the question is, how well did they accomplish that? Um, some might say, well, they must not have done a very good job at it when you see how far we have slid as a country. But I don't know that that's a failure of our founders. I think they served us well. I think we just turned our backs on them. And that's why you have a government today that's $34 trillion in the red, that spends like uh, there's no tomorrow, and that uh, is looking for every way it can uh, to whittle away at, at the liberties that made us great in the first place. Uh, hopefully, you're right, that the listeners will get a better understanding and an appreciation of where things came from, you know, how things mm -hmm. came to be, what inspired our forefathers, you know, the founders of, of our government. But you, is there, go ahead. I was going to say, do we have a moment for me to add one more thing? Yeah, go for it. Okay. I've often thought if I could go back in time to say that first century BC, as the Roman Republic was in its final decades, and if I could gather Romans together and, and speak to them for a few minutes, I've often thought about what I would say. And this is relevant to what I would say if I had such an opportunity to, to speak to Americans today uh, in a big audience. I think I would go back and I would say to the Romans, you know, uh, you have started down this path of bread and circuses, of goodies from the government, of ignoring your constitution, of looking askance as certain people accumulate power at the center, whittling away at power locally and taking your liberties with them. You've looked askance at all that because you've been essentially bought off, because you're getting stuff from the government that uh, you enjoy. Well, let me tell you, I've just come from the future, and I want to tell you where this is all headed. Uh, you may be happy with it at the moment, but down the road will be bankruptcy, runaway inflation, accumulations of power in the hands of a few tyrants, and your liberties and ultimately the life of the Republic uh, and later the Roman Empire itself will dissolve. It'll all be over. Uh, now, now that I've told you where it's headed, do you still want to do this? Do you still want to vote yourself benefits at the rest of society's expense? Do you still want to look askance as people accumulate power at your expense? I'm guessing that a lot of Romans would say, well, hey, thanks for the warning, but gee, I don't want to say no to what I'm getting. 
And if it causes problems, though, you know, our grandkids will worry about it. Uh, that's probably what they'd say. Well, isn't that a lot what Americans are thinking today? And I think that's a shame. And we ought to learn, look at the Romans and uh, not repeat their mistakes. Yeah. Who was it that uh, quoted? I'm sure more than one people quoted this, but, you know, to paraphrase, you know, uh, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's sort of where we're at. I, I don't know. I want to say Churchill, but, you know, there could be there could be somebody else. It was a philosopher by the name of George Santayana. OK, uh, we remember what he said better than we remember his name. But you're right. <laughs> He was the one who said that. Okay. <laughs> That's good to know. For whatever reason, the name Churchill stuck to my head, but he was likely, as you had pointed out, you know, with, with the original uh, uh, individual, likely just requoting it. So anyway, sometimes good things are hard to pass up. You have to think in terms of what will your grandchildren and their grandchildren say as they look back on you? Will they say, hey, thanks, Grandpa, for bequeathing us $500 trillion in debt or, or whatever. <laughs> Thank you for sowing the seeds so that we can live as slaves today. Or would you prefer that they say, wow, when American liberty was at stake, thank you, Grandma and Grandpa, for speaking truth to power, standing up for what was right, even if it cost you in the near term. Which do you want to be your epitaph? Unfortunately, that's a question that we're, or that's something that we're going to be dealing with for many generations to come. I think so. I wanted to take an opportunity to ask you, are there any, any final words, any last words you wanted to share, you know, with the individual before we depart? I think I'd like to close by underscoring the importance of personal character. A lot of people think, oh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, or what can I do? I'm only one person. Well, you can start with yourself. You can be the best example you can possibly be uh, to your children, to those around you, to others you may come into contact with and be an influence on. You can uh, uh, do what you know to be right, uh, live your life in a righteous fashion as best you can, and go to your reward knowing that you weren't part of the problem. You were part of the solution. That's the most that the world can expect of any uh, good man or woman. But if you let your character slide, I mean, there's no second chance uh, after you depart this world. You know, you you got one chance to make your life a shiny example um, of of all the good things, things that you know to be right. So why not live up to them while you can? Uh, Society will benefit as a result and your, your progeny will thank you for being the example you were. And you forgot to add and read your Cicero. That's right. Definitely. Read your Cicero. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Larry, uh, for, for joining me on, on uh, Digging Up the Past. My pleasure. Thank you, Petros. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack Threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroskatupis.com. Who knows, it may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis, signing off. Mm-hmm.